We'll commence our reading there at verse 23. That's John 2, starting at the 23rd verse. Hear once again the word of our God. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except... God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second can he enter the can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master in Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen. And ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless us richly under it this morning. A friend, without any, any intentionality on my part, uh, the text that we take up this morning certainly carries with it the same kinds of themes that we took up the previous week. Uh, Very much, you and I could see Nicodemus in light of what we considered from Matthew 25. Here you have, if you like, one of the foolish virgins. One who had a name, one, one who seemingly was pure. One who you would expect from his identity and his position to be one who truly served, truly loved God. But what we find in this text, just as we found in Matthew 25, is that Christ Christ is quick to drive Nicodemus away from his false rests. He's quick to show Nicodemus that, that while he may indeed have the form of godliness, he lacks its power. In other words, in this text, what we find is Christ confronting one who we saw in Matthew 25 and showing him that 
he had neither vessel nor oil. Now, friend, as we take up this text, it's important for us to see that Nicodemus is really not the only one in view here. If you remember back to chapter 2, starting at the 23rd verse, we're immediately acquainted with those who were told in the text believed in Jesus' name because they saw the miracles which he had performed. But then, staggeringly, in verse 24, we're told that Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Literally, the word is the same word for belief in the 23rd verse. And so, literally translated, the idea is is that they believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe them. And that prompts a question, and the question is, well, why didn't he believe them? What's really meant there? And we're told, John, in in the latter portion of verse 24 and 2 verse 25, that, that God, that God the Son incarnate, saw the hearts of men. That's why he didn't believe them. But then that brings another question with it. Well, what did Christ see? What did he see in them that, that, that prevented him from, as it were, committing himself or believing them? In answer to that question, John gives us in the third and fourth chapters of this gospel, something of an answer. In the fourth chapter, we see it with the woman at Samaria, but in the third chapter, we find Nicodemus. Nicodemus, his case, this dialogue answers that question. What did Christ see that led him not to believe the great professions that he and others had made in Jerusalem? Now, friend, as you look at this text, in the second verse, Nicodemus does come professing to be part of that number. Again, I want you to notice the pronoun. Nicodemus says, we, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. In other words, you're not supposed to see this as a secret, personal, clandestine meeting for Nicodemus' sake alone. He comes, as it were, as, as a part of this delegation, of, and he comes there to, to have this conference with Christ as one who believed, in a way. But then you remember how Christ responds. He says, you must be born again. Verse 3, except a man be born again, or as we said before, literally from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, I've seen these things. I see that you're from God, and Christ, in his reply, he says, you don't see a right, and you can't see a right unless you're born from above. Now, friend, as you remember, perhaps from last Lord's Day evening, Christ deals with Nicodemus' following unbelief. And so Christ answers Nicodemus by, by explaining a bit further in verses 5 to 8, what he means by this new birth, and then he also goes further, and he tells Nicodemus how this new birth is affected. That brings us to our text this morning, which begins there at verse 9. Nicodemus responds. He says, how can these things be? And what you and I are supposed to see there again is Nicodemus's incredulity. He remains an unbeliever. And this prompts a reply from Christ. No longer an explanation. I want you to note this. Uh, Christ does not answer, he does not further elucidate what he said up to this point. No, instead, he rebukes the man. Verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? 
What's striking about this text is master is the same word that we encountered in verse 2, in which Nicodemus calls Christ a teacher or a didaskalos come from God. Christ employs the same word. In other words, what Christ is asking is, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? He's not referring to Nicodemus here as Nicodemus was a powerful member of the Sanhedrin. He's not, he's not referring to the man as he was a wealthy landowner in Jerusalem. He's focused primarily on the fact that Nicodemus was a teacher. And notwithstanding Nicodemus' position, the doctrine that Christ has set before him, he doesn't know it. It's a genuine rebuke. And Christ continues. He says in verse 11, We speak what we know. And, and then at the end of that verse, he says this. He says, And yet ye receive not our witness. Now, friend, this is crucial for us to understand. Chapter 2 and verse 24. Know what Christ is saying. He's saying that the profession that Nicodemus made in chapter 3, verse 2, and the professions of faith that were made at the end of chapter 2 by those in Jerusalem, he tells them very pointedly, it was actually false. It may have been some kind of faith. It might have been some kind of belief, but it wasn't saving. And it wasn't then a true reception of what Christ gave. Nicodemus might say that Christ was a teacher sent from God, but friend, what Christ here clearly perceives is that for all of his profession, well, friend, he doesn't believe a right. He doesn't believe savingly. And then in the 12th verse, we find this. Christ saying, if I have told you earthly things, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Translated literally, Christ's question is really, if I have spoken to you earthily, earthily, in other words, what Christ is referring here to is not the content. He's not saying that, that the doctrine of the new birth is an earthly thing. That's not at all what Christ is communicating. In fact, as you go back to chapter 3, verse 3, Christ calls the new birth a birth from above. No, he's not referring here to the content, to the doctrine. He's referring to the manner in which he communicated these things to Nicodemus. He spoke to him in an earthly way. He gave him these things in a way that was condescended, accommodated to Nicodemus. And still, notwithstanding Christ's pains to, to communicate these things clearly to Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, he says, even, even with all of that effort, Nicodemus would not receive earthly or heavenly conversation. My friend, as we look at this text, as we stand back, and so we apply it to ourselves, the first thing we have to recognize is that this is a text of clear rebuke. Here, our Lord is clearly prosecuting a case against Nicodemus to show Nicodemus that his unbelief carries with it aggravated guilt. And it's an aggravated guilt because of Nicodemus' identity. He's an Israelite. And because of his position, he's a teacher in Israel. But there are two things that I want us to look at in this text, friend, that are, are quite profound, and, I, and I, think, I think there are things that we could quickly overlook. The first thing I want you to recognize is, is how verse 8 of chapter 3 
really helps us understand what we find in this latter portion of the discourse here. What do I mean? Well, if you look at verse 8, you find Christ saying this about the new birth. He says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit of God. And, and you remember that that eighth verse is really Christ's reply to Nicodemus's question, essentially, what can a man do? What can a man do to affect this new birth? Christ's response in verse 8 is that the work of the new birth is a monergistic work. That is, mono, one, ergo, that is an ergonomics, one working. And that one working is God alone. What Christ says in John 3, 8 is that no man affects the new birth. It is a sovereign work of grace. Now, friend, as you look at this text, then we find ourselves confronted with a man who had incredible exposure to the truth of God's word, a man who taught the very word of God which he had committed to memory from a very young age, a man who was a master, as it were, of the word. And on top of that, a man who had been spoken to in a very condescended, accommodated way by the Lord. Notwithstanding all of that, he doesn't even understand the new birth. Friend, this is an illustration of what Christ has given to us in the 8th verse. Notwithstanding all of Nicodemus' privileges, notwithstanding all of the means that he had in front of him, apart from the work of grace, he couldn't even rightly understand the work. And friend, if he couldn't understand it, then certainly he couldn't affect it. He must be born again. Now as we look at this, friend, this does hold out to us a truth that we are to hold on to. That goes well beyond just this one conversation between Christ and the Pharisee. And that is that really, friend, unless one has undergone this work themselves, unless the new birth has been affected by the sovereign work of grace, well, friend, we will remain in the dark. We can have all of the privileges, all of the means in front of us, but, but the truth of regeneration in its depth and in its clarity will forever elude us. In other words, what you and I could take from this text is that grace is truly known only by its recipients. Grace is truly known only by its recipients. And as we look at this text, friend, I want you to notice that Christ really gives us three modes of communication or three ways of, of conveying this knowledge of the new birth. Uh, there's one of one's general exposure to these truths. We see that in verse 10. Art thou a master in Israel? And friend, the, the idea is, is, is here that he's a teacher. Yes, we've already said that. But, but again, I want you to notice how he emphasizes the fact that Nicodemus was a master of Israel. A master in the church of God. And friend, especially as a Pharisee, this was quite staggering because the Pharisees were really custodians of the entirety of the canon of the Old Testament. Whereas the Sadducees only, only really looked to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were known as those who were truly people of the book. 
and of the thousands of Pharisees that would have been there, only a select few would have made their way into the Sanhedrin, and they would have been distinguished for their knowledge of the entire corpus of God's word. And so Nicodemus is one who here is clearly a man gifted with his knowledge of the word of God. A man who is endued with, with incredible exposure to the word of God that under, under the Old Testament was peculiarly the inheritance of Israel. Nicodemus was a master of Israel and that means then that he had the scriptures and was intimately acquainted with them. He even taught them. And this is what prompts Christ's rebuke. How then are you so ignorant? You have been exposed to the word for for so long and at such incredible depth. And yet, and yet, the doctrines that I've set before you that are to be found in those pages, you're ignorant of them. How so? And friend, what this teaches us here very clearly is that exposure to the truth of regeneration, exposure to the truthfulness of the new birth, is of itself inadequate. Nicodemus had the words in front of him, but as yet that new work had not been, had not been wrought. I suppose in one sense, friend, you, can, you and I can look at this as, as indicating that the doctrine of the new birth, the doctrine of regeneration, does often, it does often leave the church. That is, leave the people of God. Uh, as you read through the history of the church, the, the doctrine of regeneration is often corrupted. Sometimes it's entirely forgotten. Uh, sometimes it, it's simply made less than what it actually is, less pervasive, less extensive in its effects, and so corrupted. But friend, I want you to notice that if it is corrupted, if it is corrupted as it certainly was in the first century, as we see it in this dialogue and as we reflect on it, as we find it discussed in Matthew 3, friend, it's corrupted despite the fact that the word of God is very clear on it. In other words, its corruption owes to no defect in the word of God. The scriptures taught this plainly to Nicodemus. I mean, take just for instance what you find in Deuteronomy. The Lord Thy God will circumcise thine heart and and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all that thou mayest live. And friend, what, what there Moses is saying very pointedly is that God must effect the work and in the effecting of that work, the man is made new. He now has dispositions, appetites as it were after God. This was in the word of God itself. The word that again Nicodemus would have committed to memory and would have propagated. Not only to Judea, but perhaps even to others. You could go to the prophets and you'd find the same thing. In Ezekiel 36, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And friend, even even in the sung praise of God in Psalm 51, the same general idea is there. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's no lack of clarity in the word of God that God must be the one who creates an utter transformation in the soul. And yet Nicodemus is oblivious 
And friends, so it is in our generation. When, when people talk about the new birth, they can have all of these kinds of scriptures memorized. They, they, can have, they could have sat, sat under all kinds of preaching. And yet when you ask somebody, what does it mean to be born again? So often the answer is, well, when you walk an aisle, when you pray a prayer. That that's the new birth. That, there, that that's the other transformation that Scripture gives. That's not it at all, friend. That is not it at all. And that again shows you that, that the doctrine can be corrupted despite the fact that the Word of God is so clear. Friend, so often it's the case that, that even in our generation and even among Reformed folk, the idea of conversion is so much reduced is seen as such a small thing. As though its effects were not so extensive. As though its transformation was not so full. And that, again, in spite of the fact, friend, that the word of God is so clear. This is where the images of 2 Corinthians 3 and Isaiah 28 really come into play. Friend, the church had even the pure preaching of the Word of God. But it lacked the coactive grace. Yes, it was God's grace in the sense that the Word of God came and that it was preached purely. But friend, it profited them nothing because the grace of God it was not there making men new. Well, you see in this text friend, and and this is an application that we ought to take on board, is that this shows us that the means that God himself has established in his word, that is, of course, the public proclamation of it, and, and all of the means that are attached to it, they are but conduits of grace. And it is God, God who holds, holds, as it were, the valve, to open and to shut. Men and women can sit under the sound of this kind of preaching, preaching about the new birth. They can be catechized in it and recite the scriptures and the catechisms on its themes. The entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith, its chapter on on effectual calling, can be known and known by rote, but, but friend, until God takes up those means and employs them graciously, They'll be like Nicodemus. We need to be mindful of that, friend. Because if we are mindful of that, then we won't rest in an external mean itself. We will come throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God and acknowledge that unless His coactive grace goes with the means... Friend, we will be like Nicodemus still. The second thing I want you to notice, friend, here is that Nicodemus's ignorance stands even in spite of the condescended expressions that Christ makes. You find this in verse 12. Again, Christ there says, if I have told you of earthly things, that is, if I have spoken to you in a, in a way that was earthly, and you've not understood, how could you understand heavenly things? And, and friend, you think about the manner in which Christ has dealt with Nicodemus communicates to them this idea of regeneration through the imagery of a birth. And then he comes to describe the way in which that's affected by taking up the imagery of the wind and the effects of a breeze. 
These are illustrations, these are images that, that ought to have been easily understood by Nicodemus. It was an earthly way of communicating a heavenly truth. And yet Nicodemus is bewildered. He's shocked. But friend, there's, there's something here. There's a second profound element of this text that I, I think we could quickly overlook. If the first was the fact that Nicodemus here is an example of one who must wait upon God to blow upon him in spite of all of his exposure to the word of God. The second is this, that Christ's external ministry, that is without the inward working of the spirit of God going with Christ's discourse, that even that was insufficient to enlighten Nicodemus. And friend, there's nothing derogatory there about the ministry of Christ. Had Christ wanted to arrest this man at this time, had the Spirit of God been working and going with the words of Christ in the soul of Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have believed. But what this shows us here, friend, is that even Christ's public ministry, without the inward work of the Spirit of God and its hearers, well, friend, men could perish for all of it. Nicodemus was still blind, though Christ had taken such pains to deal with him. And for what this teaches us here then is that no instruction, no instruction on conversion itself imparts that inward knowledge of regeneration. One can be instructed even from the lips of Christ. One can, as it were, be taken by even his hand and, and gently led through its themes and still for all of that lack what really is a true and inward knowledge of the thing. And this is given to us so very clearly in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Paul says there, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And what you and I are supposed to see in that text, and in our text as well this morning, is that there we're not referring only to a notional understanding of the thing. Somebody could read the words even sing such words in praise to God about the new birth and being made new by God and having a heart made clean and so forth. They, they could even have those things notionally. But what the apostle is driving home and really what is really underlying our text is that they can't have an experiential knowledge of these things. They can parrot, in other words, the truth. They can be catechized in these things and still, friend, be oblivious to the motions, the depth, and the effects of the new birth itself. Nicodemus could be a teacher in Israel and could even have Christ gently leading him through, accommodating his language to him and still at the end of all of that be oblivious to the effects, depth, and motions of that work. To illustrate this, there was an early modern historian. He was, he was writing in the 17th century. And his name was Bemis. And, and Bemis, what he did was he, he really took clippings of, of all kinds of, of stories that he, he read in books about people who've gone to foreign lands. And he put them all together. And he created something, as it were, of the first travel guide for Europe to explore other parts of, of the known world. 
what you find in that travel guide is that, first of all, Bemis was in many ways mistaken, and in some ways drastically so. But the second thing that you'll find here is that Bemis actually never left the continent. He, he records foreign lands. He talks, writes at length about, about different peoples and cultures. And his own eyes never saw any of them. And friend, that's the kind of idea that you and I have in this text. Somebody, somebody could master the scriptures in an external way. Somebody could be a master in Israel, as Nicodemus was. But if he spoke of these things, it was as though he was speaking of a foreign land that he himself had never seen. So, friend, remember here that the scriptures, the catechisms, the confession of faith, they can be recited by many who do not know really the work of grace within. They can be a master in Israel and not know it. Our third and our final mode of knowledge here is that of experience. The first two, as you'll conclude, obviously we're not saving. One could have significant exposure to these doctrines. One could have the most condescended expressions used about these themes and still for all of that not be saved. I want you to notice what Christ says in the 11th verse. He says, we speak what we know. It's interesting, Christ there uses the plural. And, and the sense of, that commentators have driven home here is that this is really a general maxim. As one commentator put it here, the terms here express a certainty of the mind arising both from the rational deduction and the sensible demonstration. In which, he says, our Savior lets his ministers know what is their duty, namely to teach unto people what they have known and seen themselves. Well, friend, taking that that is Christ's meaning, this text underscores the only right kind of knowledge of regeneration. It's experiential. Experiential knowledge is the best and clearest knowledge of the new birth. Friend, briefly as we close, I want us to to meditate on that for a moment longer. That those who have experienced this work know it best. And that does not at all supplant the scriptures. The scriptures themselves are the chief and the only real and, and, and lodestone for the believer on anything. But I want you to notice, friend, that the scriptures teach us that the word of God and experience, that is what we often refer to as illumination, are necessary in order for a correct and fructifying knowledge to be found in the believer. Friend, that's again given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's shown to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not just a notional understanding of the word, but an inward illumination that is necessary. That moment where, as it were, the word of God and experience both become tutors to the soul. And where the experience now, as it were, shows the workings of what the word of God reveals. A friend, as we look at this text, what you and I are supposed to keep it for us is this idea that, that friend, without that, without that, the hypocrite 
may be able to say any number of things about the new birth. But inevitably, he will mistake its depth. He will mistake its holiness. He will also mistake the pervasiveness of its character. He will think it's something that is easily contrived. In other words, he will think that the form of godliness is identical to the power of it. The friend, the, the Christian knows something different. They know that it's not a, sl- a small or a slight work, that it is an utter transformation, that it is pervasive, that it reaches into every part of the person's life. And no, no, no Christian is made perfect this side the grave. But, but what the believer does know about this new birth is, is that the God whom their, their flesh hates Well, friend, their soul now loves. In other words, even if they were converted at a very young age, the believer still knows the motions of a true work of grace better than the hypocrite knows it himself. You see, here's the difference, I suppose. You could say that the child of darkness, that is, somebody like Nicodemus in our text, he might be able to describe the sun. If he was in a cave... He never saw the light, never felt its warmth. He might be able to describe notionally what the sun is and what it does. But he he would have no concept of its brilliance. He might be able to tell you wonderful facts, astronomical facts about, about the circumference of the sun, the distance of it from the earth, and so forth. But he could not really articulate the brilliance of the sun. That's very different than the child of light who might be dark in their understandings at the first. I'm I'm talking here about somebody who, who has undergone the work of the new birth but perhaps doesn't know it. You see, they might not know, like the child of darkness, all of those astronomical facts about the sun, but they know this much. Well, friend, they know they know its warmth and they know its brilliance because they felt it. They have an experience of its warmth. They might not be clear. Their knowledge, their vision may not be proportional. It may, it may include so much misperception, but they do have an experiential knowledge of the inward workings of God's Spirit. And that the hypocrite doesn't. Friend, as we close... I know I'm not speaking here to a room full of ministers, but I, I think it's crucial to see this text as it is especially for those who are preachers of the gospel. There was a man in the 18th century, rather. He was a pastor of pastors, as it were. He was training men for the ministry. And at the very end of his life, as he he compiled his lectures that he had given time and time again, he included at the start these words. He says, Alas, my dear pupils, Must all of my instruction, all the strivings of the Holy Ghost, all your reading, all your meditations, all your sermons, all your evangelical principles, all your profession, all your prayers, as traps and snares take and bind any of you, hand and foot into outer darkness, with all your knowledge of the contents of your Bible and other books. He's talking to preachers. And note what he's saying there. What John Brown of Haddington is saying in this moment is the very thing that Christ has communicated to Nicodemus. 
without this experiential knowledge of the new birth, friend, you could be a master in Israel and perish for all of that. And so, friend, we find here a text very similar to the one that we took up this week. Very similar to Matthew 25. One in which Christ urges souls to make their calling and election sure. And there are two questions that emerge from this text that help us answer that question. The first one is, how do you make use of the means of grace? How do you make use of the word of God? Friend, if it's a talisman to you, if you think that simply by, by, as it were, allowing your eyes to roll over the page, that by osmosis, or in the Roman Catholic idea, ex opere operato, that, that, that it simply will work of itself. Well then, friend, you need to look at Nicodemus, because he had all of that exposure and more to the word of God. No, they don't work ex opere operato. They don't work in themselves. And so, friend, a a soul that that knows the inward workings of God's grace will make use of the means sensibly dependent upon God's mercy. In other words, what they will say is, well, friend, either either this will make me harder or softer in heart. As one Puritan put it, this sermon will either set me one mile closer to heaven or that distance closer to hell. No, friend, it's God's work, working of his spirit under and through the means that the sensible soul expects and longs for. So how do you use the means of grace? The second question that comes from this text, too, is that, friend, are, are you content with a little change, a little alteration? Christ describes the new birth as a birth from above. And yes, in some believers, friend, it it may begin small. It may look more like a flicker than it does a great blaze. But but friend, it will be pervasive. It will grow and it will drive you more and more to holiness. It must. Friend, is that the kind of knowledge of, of, of a change wrought by Christ that you have? The second element, though, from this text, friend, and this is one that we are, to, we are to rejoice in, is that Nicodemus was a foolish virgin. For a time, he was one who had a name to life but was dead. He was whited, but he was a whited sepulcher with all death within. But only for a time. Friend, Christ was pleased to arrest him in his love pull him out from his hypocrisy, and to make him a wise virgin indeed, who at the end of his day indeed would have his vessel and his oil with him. Christ is pleased to take such. And so, friend, you see the condescended love and mercy. Though Nicodemus deserved nothing, though he was a hypocrite and deserved the hypocrite's end, Christ plucked him like a firebrand because of his deep love. As we close, friend, this is a text that urges us to plead. Plead with Christ to do this work. Perhaps, friend, after this week and even after this morning, you're not sure that the work has been done. Friend, you must throw yourself at the throne of grace. Allow yourself no rest. You say, that's exhausting. Well, then, friend, you're further from the kingdom than you realize. 
Uh, friend, be, be content to die holding to the horns of the altar, waiting for this work to be wrought. Because it must be wrought by God if it's to be wrought at all. Wrought at all. But secondly, friend, you and I, we are, we are to plead, if we have this knowledge already, we are to plead for greater knowledge. Nicodemus lacked, lacked this knowledge in its essence. Friend, the believer, as he grows in grace, as the new nature continues to work, he will gain greater knowledge of these things by degree. And that's the thing that you and I as Christians are to plead for. That we would know more experientially and in a deeper way how this new nature works. We have so little knowledge in our generation of the motions of God's spirit. And that's because even those who have this basic knowledge of that inward work, friend, we have very little knowledge of its great growth and increase. So we pray for that. We pray that the Lord God would make that knowledge more and more known to us. And that for his glory. Amen.